The following message is from King's Cross Church in Manchester, New Hampshire. For more information, please visit us at kingscrossmanchester.com. We're in Genesis chapter 6. If you have a Bible, um, uh, I apologize. The verses are not going to be behind me. Uh, This morning, we are uh, doing our best to work through the book of Genesis. And this morning, we find ourselves in the flood, and um, I will say, I had previously, this last week was a bit of a uh, scramble because I realized that I had scheduled for us to do like four weeks on the flood, because when I was scheduling out the sermon series, I was like, oh, we'll do Genesis chapter 6, then we'll do Genesis chapter 7, then we'll do Genesis chapter 8, and then chapter 9, and then I realized like, oh, 6, 7, 8, and 9 are all about the flood. (laughs) So we were adjusting that down this past week to be, we're going to do the flood this morning, and then we'll do uh, God's covenant with Noah next week. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to pray, and then we're going to ask for God's help to work through um, this gigantic section of Scripture, okay? God, as we uh, look at the flood and consider all that you are telling us here, we ask you to take this moment now by your Spirit to quiet our hearts, to not only see your judgment, but to experience your mercy and through the waters of judgment to experience your mercy because you are faithful. So that's what we, that would be our experience this morning as we look at this passage together. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, I'll remind you that if you have questions, uh, you can uh, send those to the number that's on the screen on each of the slides. Um, I, I'm not sure if anybody's seen the new Batman movie. But I've seen the new Batman movie, and first of all, I loved it. But it's caused me to be uh, the idea of reboots being on my mind a lot in the last week or so. I was going to do a long exposition about Batman movies and how great they are, but I think we all kind of understand the idea of reboots. Um, I, uh, as a way of wooing my wife, uh, learned that there are the uh, BBC production of Jane Eyre, or I'm not, Jane Austen movies, and then um, with Colin Firth, for example, like the six-hour, like I endured the six-hour um, Pride and Prejudice, and then, you know, Kira Knightley did her thing, which is fine, but, you know, it it's its own reboot. It's a different movie, um, <laughs> whereas, like, so you got the new Batman with uh, Robert Pattinson, um, which is, I mean, he owns the role quite good. Um, very different from the original Batman movie. Um, who was it? Who's the original Batman? I, Michael Keaton. Okay, we're gonna have a discussion here. So this is why you don't bring up. <laughs> uh, so, so you have Michael Keaton and Adam West and their original Batman movie, and then you have the reboots with Christopher Nolan, and then you have this one with Robert Pattinson. The entire reason why, why I bring up this entire idea of reboots is that what happens in a reboot is you have the um, the predominant story that's told. Everybody hears that story, and then they hear the, the new version with the new director, new actors. They all have their kind of different flavor on it. Um, and you kind of see the original idea with new fingerprints on it. So Christopher Nolan's Batman, 
you have the villains that are all like relatable as opposed to like Jack Nicholson's, which are certainly iconic, but very comical. And you get the idea of the characters being much more relatable, blah, blah, blah. The reason I bring that up is that when we engage with the story of the flood and Noah, we are in a certain sense engaging with God's reboot of a very ancient story. Um, the flood narrative, um, as far as I can tell from my reading, is told in virtually every continent of the world with the exception of Africa. Africa doesn't really have any stories of the flood, but you have flood narratives from Europe, Asia, the Middle East, North America. They all have, in one degree or another, ancient stories of the flood. They all tell a story of one way or the other, and they have gods involved, and they have somebody who survives the flood. What I want to do this morning is I want to look at the flood story that would have been very common in the ancient world. Um, it's called the Epic of Gilgamesh. I've referred to it a few times and uh, in the sermon series. And the reason I want to talk about that, ser- that story is because there are very clear parallels to what's going on with Noah. And what you have with any good reboot, you have parallels, but then this the changes that drive you into what's the director's point? What's going on here in the story? So for example, in the to use Batman, Christopher Nolan's Batman, right? The story is told less around how can we get these action sequences and comical characters all in the same room and more about character development of the character of Batman and the, um, you know, relatability of the villains, and you're drawn into the story in a different direction. So what I want to do this morning is, if this fails, I'll just remind you, this is free. Nobody paid to be here. (laughs) Um, But my point in this morning is I want to tell the story of Gilgamesh. And I want to tell it in a way where you, then we will look at the story of Noah and we'll read through major sections of Genesis. And I think as we do this, you will begin to see, oh, there are some clear parallels, but there's also some important distinctions. Because I want to remind you, this book that we have here in Genesis, this was written to a bunch of people who had been freed from a land of slavery, walked across the desert for 40 years, They had their parents' graves scattered across the desert behind them. They're standing at a big river with a mountain beside them, looking at a land filled with giants. And they're like, this God has led us up to this point to go over this river to to, to claim this land that's called our promised land. Can we trust this God? And so the story that we're looking at with Noah, in contrast to to the ancient story of Gilgamesh, we see through the story how much God pops off the screen, pops off the pages as being, wow, this God is the type of God we can trust and we want to be with. That's that's kind of what we see here when we read through Genesis, but we can't quite see that unless we look at the story of Gilgamesh. So you guys cool? I'm going to do an overview summary of the Epic Gilgamesh if you want, if you're really like into it. You can Google Epic of Gilgamesh tablet 11 and read through the original version yourself, it's free on Google. Um, So um, the main character in the story of Gilgamesh is um, Apnapishtim. Apnapishtim? That's not, anybody's not named 
Mr. Yu. Can we just say Mr. Yu for our main character? <laughs> Is that cool with everybody? Um, okay. So the story of Gilgamesh starts with Gilgamesh is trying to find eternal life. He's trying to figure out how to land, live forever. And he is talking with Mr. Yu. Mr. Yu tells him the story of how he survived the flood. So this is how the Epic of Gilgamesh goes. The background to the Epic of Gilgamesh is that Mr. Yu is living in a world where the gods are very frustrated with humans because we make a lot of noise, very noisy. It's hard to take naps. If you've got kids, it's hard to take naps if there's a lot of kids in the house running around. Same for the gods. Some Strangely, gods want to take naps. They want to sleep. They want a good nap. And it's hard to take a nap when you've got a lot of humans making noise and racket and all that stuff. So that's the background of the story. We have the great gods, Anu, um, Enlil, and um, Ea. They were sworn to secrecy about their plan of how to solve this problem of the noise. Everybody, you know, if you got kids, you know, like you got to solve the problem of the noise. Put a movie on. For the gods, they didn't have TV back then, so what were they going to do? We're just going to wash all these people away with this thing called the flood. Um, <laughs> so, so Ia, he repeated this plan to Mr. Yu. This is how he did it, though. He was sworn to secrecy, so a secret within the gods is a divine command. They can't break it, but he can kind of like do it through um, speaking through walls. If anybody's seen a good horror movie, you know that horror movies, speaking through walls is always a premonition of bad things to come. And so he, yeah, Ia speaks to Mr. Yu through the walls, through the reed walls, and says, hey, just so you know, you need to destroy your house, use all the wood from your house, and build an ark. I'm going to give you a, the plans for the boat. And you need to build this boat so that you can survive the impending judgment that's coming. Ia um, tells uh, Mr. Yu the exact plans of the, the, the boat that he is supposed to build. It is supposed to be 120 cubits by 120 cubits, a perfect square. So a cubit in kind of contemporary language is like half a football field. So if you imagine like you took a football field, you cut it in half. I want you to take your house made of reeds and wood, and I want you to build this boat, a perfect square, the size of a half of a football field, to survive it. And I want you to take all of your animals, I want you to take all your animals that you own, that you use to farm, and I want you to put them inside your perfectly square boat to survive the flood. So, this is the important part. Mr. Yu promised to do everything that Ia commanded. He hired carpenters and reed workers and other people and assembled one morning, and they all built the, art, the boat. The boat had six decks. They built it according to 120 cubits by 120 cubits, and they put poles and everything else on it to be able to uh, push off from the land. They took 3,600 units of raw bitumen, and melted it in the kiln, and uh, three times they put that bitumen on the boat to seal it. Oxen and sheep were slaughtered. Ale, beer, oil, and wine were distributed to the workmen like a New Year's festival, so that everybody had a good time and had a big party. When the boat was finished, the launch was very difficult. 
was very difficult to get the boat out from where they built it onto the river that they were right beside. They used the poles and everything like that. And the boat rested two-thirds of it in the water, just like when you uh, pack your car for a long trip. The back of it kind of sinks with all the, the luggage everything in the back. Just like that, Mr. Yu's boat rested in the water. He also loaded up his boat with silver and gold, with everything that he had, and all the living beings that he had, he put on the boat. His relatives and the craftsmen and all the beasts and the animals of the field were boated, were boarded on the boat. When the time arrived, as stated by the god uh, Shamash, uh, they, to seal the entry door, they went about sealing the door. And in the morning of the door, uh, morning of the dawn, when the flood was to happen, a black cloud arose on the horizon. The weather was getting very frightful, and Mr. Yu boarded his boat and entrusted the boat with uh, with all its contents. Uh, we're just going to say Mr. P because he's got a crazy long name that I don't know how to tell. And then the thunder god, Abed, went to town. Uh, Abed uh, was, the cl- was the storm god, and he rolled over the mountains, and uh, he unleashed a storm like had never been seen before. Now, I just want to pause in the story to take note. It was Mr. Yu with all of his friends and family. They went on the boat. Uh, it was a very short amount of time that they got. They built from when they build to, to put on the, uh, to get on the boat. Um, and you'll notice that they, they had a feast for all of his coworkers and friends so that they didn't know what was going on before they got on the boat. Just a little deception there. Um, there was a stunning shock at this type of storm that Abed brought upon the land. The land was shaking like a pot, and the story tells how the gods themselves, the other gods who were watching this event unfold, are shaking and shivering and weeping in the corners of their houses. Um, Ishtar shrieked like a woman in childbirth. The other gods were weeping and sat sobbing with grief. Their lips were burning. I'm not exactly sure what that means for your lips to burn, but the story tells about how their lips, the gods, their lips were burning. The flood and wind lasted for six days and six nights. It flattened the land, and the story talks about how it turned all people, except for those who were in the boat, to clay. The sea was calmed, and the whirlwind and flood stopped. The terrain was as flat as a rooftop, and Mr. Yu opened a wind and felt the fresh air on his face. He then fell to his knees, sat weeping, tears streaming down his face, and the coastlines on the horizon saw a regional land. The boat lodged on a mountain, which held the boat for several days, allowing no, uh, not allowing it to move. On the seventh day, he released a dove that flew away, but came back to him. He released a swallow, and it came back to him, and he released a raven later that um, was able to eat and scratch and did not circle back to him. He then sent his livestock out in various directions. So the implication being, open the, open the door, sent his livestock out, everybody go have fun time. He then sacrificed a sheep and offered incense on a mountainous um, 
in a mountainous area. Uh, he placed 14 sacrificial vessels and poured reeds, the cedar, and myrtle into the fire. But God smelled the sweet odor of the sacrificed animal and gathered like like flies to the sacrifice. That's literally in the story. That the gods are like, this smells great. And just like you would have a pile of trash and f- flies coming to it, that's how the, the story tells of the, the, the gods coming to it. The great gods arrived. And um, Elnil, uh, uh, sorry, one of the gods said, uh, as surely I shall not forget this, uh, this necklace around my neck, I shall be mindful of these days and never forget them. The gods may come uh, to the sacrificial offering, but Elnil may not come because he brought about the flood and annihilated my people without consideration. Basically, the gods are starting to have this inner fight. Hey, you got you brought this flood upon all these people. We didn't know what was going to happen. It got worse than we expected, and um, you're not allowed to be a part of this party anymore. And then, um, basically, there's an inner fight that within the gods. There's a fight about who told these people how to survive because there's nobody who's supposed to survive this flood, anyways. Uh, Ea, um, Ea spoke up and said, uh, basically, um, how could you bring about this flood without considering who was going to survive? This all results in Mr. Yu being turned into a god because he survived the flood and him and his wife being ushered into the realm of the gods. Okay. I've told you the story of Gilgamesh. Are you guys still with me or are you guys kind of nodding off because it's we're good? All right, because I'm getting sleepy just listening to this. Okay. <laughs> so, now, I hope you can kind of begin to see there are some similarities in the story, right? You have a god who's going to uh, bring about the flood. You have a survivor who's told how to survive through the flood. Um, and there's various elements through that. So, what I'd like to do now, are you guys cool if we kind of all right, let's do the reboot of the flood story according to God. You guys cool with that? All right. All right. I'm going to actually read the text of Scripture because we didn't do that at the beginning of the sermon. We typically do. And that's I wanted to set it up so that you heard it in the way the original audience would have been hearing this story. So I'm going to read selections, and then we're going to pause as we read through this and just make commentary on here's some similarities And here's some important differences that we see as we go through the story. So we're going to pick up in Genesis chapter 6, verse 9. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. And Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Jephthah. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all the flesh, on the, uh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark, then cover it inside and out with pitch. This is how you are to make it. The length of the ark should be 300 cubits by uh, its breadth, 50 cubits, and its height, 30 cubits. Make a roof for the ark and finish it um, Finish it to a cubit above, set the door of the ark 
on, in its side, make it with the lower, second, and third decks. So you notice it has three decks as opposed to six. For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which the breath of life, uh, which is, in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything is uh, on the earth shall die. I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall become uh, shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. And of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark and keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female, the birds according to their kinds, the animals according to their kinds, and every creeping thing around the ground according to its kind. Two of every sort shall come into you to be kept alive. Also take with you every sort of food that is eaten and stored up and shall serve as food for you and for them. Noah did this. He did all that God had commanded him. Now you'll notice... Pause here for a second, Mr. Uh, Mr. A, Mr. Was it Mr. U or Mr. A? I can't remember. Mr. U, sorry. Mr. U did all that the gods commanded him. Right? You'll notice that right out of front. Did everything that was commanded. There is a divine messenger to tell humanity how to survive the flood. He gives them the plans of how to what to build. Hey, build. This is the boat that you need to build. Here's the plans. Instructs him, instructs him to bring food, instructs him on how to cover it, instructs him on the animals to bring. I want you to notice some of the differences here. God speaks clearly to Noah. You notice he, in the story with Mr. Yu, the, Gilg- the Gilgamesh story, he like has to do the side story because he's made a covenant or a, a promise to the gods. I'm not going to tell you, the, I'm not going to tell humans a story. So he has to like, speak through the walls to tell them this, the vision of what's coming. You notice how it's striking how clear God is with these instructions of what he's going to do. It, we get used to reading the stuff in the Bible because we're just used to how God engages with the world. But you have to understand in the ancient world, like people, the, the gods only spoke through like if you were high or had a vision or were like doing something that you shouldn't be doing or asleep or something like that. Here, God is just, Noah, hey, Noah, how's it going? How's your day going? Here, here's what's coming. I want you to build this. Like he was like placing an order with Home Depot, you know? God is clear in how he talks to Noah. And then secondly, you'll notice God is clear as to why he's bringing the flood. It's not because he can't get a nap. And I think it's fascinating just to consider, and this is something to consider in your own personal time, but the story says it's because of not just sin in general, but because of the violence that humanity brings upon the earth. As we sit here with the impending reality of World War III with Ukraine and Russia, we are, we are startled into the horror of sin, not just because people are bad to each other, but because of the violence that we see, and God sees this violence, and he says, this is why we got to start over. This is not good, to reverse Genesis 1. The second, uh, third thing, God gives plenty of time. He gives 100 years. So Noah, we end Genesis 5 with Noah being 500 years. We, we realize that Noah is 600 years old through the story. God has given plenty of time for people to repent, for people to turn, for people to join Noah, to respond. 
to say, hey, Noah, it seems like you walk with God. You're a man of righteousness. Show me the way. He's given plenty of time, as opposed to the Epic of Gilgamesh, which is basically kind of like we started on a Monday. Gods are a little angry. They want a nap. By Wednesday afternoon, things are going down. Like it was a very quick turnaround. And you'll notice as well that the animals are precise about who is to be saved for Noah, as opposed to just kind of like, who do you got around at the farm? You know? Um, okay. Are you guys starting to pick up on the similarities, but then some of the differences here with Noah's story? All right. We're going to continue. Then the Lord said to Noah, go into the ark, you and your household, for I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. Take with you seven pairs of all clean animals, male and, uh, male and a mate, and a pair of the animals that are not that are not clean, a male and his mate, seven pairs of the birds of the heavens also, male and female, to keep their offspring alive in the face of the earth. For in seven days I will send rain on the earth, forty days and forty nights, and every living thing that I have made I will blot out from the face of the ground. And Noah did all that the Lord commanded. You notice the similarities are, again, in the Gilgamesh story, when when the judgment does eventually come, it's seven days from when it starts to when it when it's going to happen. So. We have that here. Um, the, there's instructions given. Differences being, and you pick up on this, God is the one who provides the instructions on the sacrifice. Take these animals. They're good for sacrifice. They're clean. There's no indication that Noah stored up, stored up his wealth either. You know, and Mr. Yu, in the Gilgamesh story, he takes all his gold and silver um, for some supposed commentary, uh, for some su- supposed economy on the other side of the flood, <laughs> here uh, Noah does not take his uh, does not take his uh, wealth on the on the ark. Okay, Noah was six hundred years old when the flood of the waters came upon the earth, and Noah and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him went into the ark to escape the waters of the flood of clean animals and the ark. Uh, and of the animals that are not clean, of the birds and everything that's creeped in the ground, two, uh, two and two, male and female, went into the ark with Noah, and God was com- and as God had commanded Noah. After seven days, the waters of the flood came upon the earth. In the six hundredth year, Noah's life, in the second month, the seventh day of the month, on the day of all the fountains of the great deep burst forth, and the windows of the heavens were open, and the rain fell upon the earth, Forty days and forty nights, and every uh, and on the very same day, Noah and his sons Shem, Ham, and Jephthah, and Noah's wife and three and their three wives, uh, one wife per son, not each had three wives, uh, and his sons uh, with them entered the ark, and they and every beast according to its kind, and all the livestock according to their kinds, and every creeping thing that creeps in the earth according to its kind, and every bird. And the uh, uh, skipping ahead. And those uh, they entered, male and female of all flesh, went in as God had commanded him, and the Lord shut him in. All right. Everybody's loaded on the boat. The boat's all shut. Uh, the boat is sealed. The difference is being, basically, um, Mr. Yu throws a party for his friends while he's, like, shuffling into the boat to start to survive the flood. Here we have, of all things, God himself shuts the boat. Did you notice that? Like, that's one of the key features in this story is just how proactive God is in the story as opposed to all these other flood narratives where everybody's like, okay, we're going to seal this up. We're going to do this ourselves. And here is God. I mean, I don't even know what that looks like. I mean, can you imagine, like, what does it look like for God to, like, 
close up the arc? I mean, is it like Luke Skywalker with the Force? Like, <laughs> I don't know. It draws you into the story by the differences to consider what does it look like for God to seal a boat? I'm going to leave that for you to consider. The flood continued 40 days on the earth. The water increased and bore up the ark, and it rose high above the earth. The waters prevailed and increased greatly on the earth. And the ark floated on the face of the waters, and the water the waters prevailed so mightily on the earth that all the high mountains under the whole heaven were covered. The waters prevailed above the mountains, covering them 15 cubits deep, and all flesh died that moved uh, on the earth, birds, livestock, beasts, all swarming creatures that swarm the earth, and all mankind, everything on the dry land, whose nostrils, in whose nostrils is a breath of life, died. He blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the ground, man and animals and creeping things and birds. Uh, the heavens, they were blotted out from the earth. Only Noah was left, and those who were with him in the ark, and the waters prevailed on the earth 150 days. And God remembered Noah and the beasts and all the livestock that were with him in the ark. So the flood happens in both stories, right? Um, both stories, people survive. People were judged and swept away by the flood. The difference is being, in this story, Yahweh is not scared by the flood. You'll notice that the flood happens in the Epic of Gilgamesh, and the gods are like, uh, we didn't expect it to get this bad. This wasn't what we expected. And here, it's basically just kind of like a matter of fact, like everything happens according to the way God said it was going to happen. It's not surprising to God. Very much of the story uh, in the Bible, God is not surprised. He's not tricky. He's not excessive. He's not flustered. When he says he's going to judge, he judges, and he does it with an even, cool hand. Not like it's awesome, but that he's very steady about it. Like you get the very steady picture of God through the story in contrast to the ancient stories of like, God is very much in control here. And then also just notice that it says that God remembered. This is a part of what we'll pick up next week when we talk about God's covenant with Noah. All right. From here, I'm just going to summarize the story for us because there's just a lot of text to continue to go through. You guys cool with that? I I know you guys, you, you like your Bibles. You can read them on your, on your own time. So you'll notice that God makes a wind blow over the earth and waters begin to subside at the end of 150 days. The waters were abated. After 40 days, Noah opens the window of the ark and lets out a raven and a dove. Both do not return. Do you remember how in the other story and the epic of Gilgamesh, there's three birds that are sent out. Here again, we have three birds that are sent out. God, uh, Noah waits seven days, sends out a dove. The dove comes back with an olive leaf. Uh, Noah waits seven days, sends out a dove, and it does not return. Basically, in Noah's story, it's a year until the land is dried up. God commands them to go out of the ark, and they depart and disperse. Similarities, God sends out a dove and a raven to figure out what's going on. Animals disperse over the flood. The differences being there's a longer period of time. And in the Epic of Gilgamesh, the gods do not command them to get out. All right, let me just, uh, let me read this final section about uh, Noah's sacrifice. And then we'll, we're all tidied up with comparing these stories. You guys tracking? Cool. Sorry, I, I suppose there's a lot of material here. <laughs> okay. Then Noah built an ark 
an, an altar for the Lord, and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird, and offered the burnt offerings on the altar. And the, when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man. For the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither shall I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night, shall not cease. Similarities are, there's a difference. Uh, there's a sacrifice after the flood and divine beings smell the pleasing aroma. Again, this is where there's a lot of evidence to show that these stories, um, that the, the Bible is familiar with the Epic of Gilgamesh because exact phrases are used. They smell the pleasing aroma is the exact same phrase being used in both stories. Now, the things that I want you to note that as we kind of get into this section of this, the sacrifice and the co God's covenant with Noah, which we'll look at next week, this is where we begin to diverge drastically from the Epic of Gilgamesh. Epic of Gilgamesh basically says, hey, you guys survived what we wanted to kill you with. Now you can become one of us. Whereas in the Bible story, God intentionally saves them. He wants them. He wants them to continue to be his image bearers on the earth. And then he sets up on the, on the earth this uh, rainbow to say, hey, this is my promise to never do this again. And I love that I'm with you guys. I'm committed to being with you. Like, it's a story that there's no similarities towards the end of the story as, as there were at the beginning. And then the differences are what begin to drive us into this story is really about showing us who God is and how different he is from the gods around the world. God wasn't tricked, and he wasn't tricking them into, into surviving the flood. God doesn't deify Noah, he certainly, he, but he does say that he is the image bearer of God. You'll notice that. In the wake of the flood, God underlines the value of human life in his proclamation of the value of, of his image being blood for blood. So you have in Genesis 9, right, the, if anybody takes the life of a man or a human, uh, from, their, from them shall their blood be demanded. Rather than this being on a, on a commentary on, like, corporal punishment or the death penalty or something like that, you'll notice in the Epic of Gilgamesh how trivial human life is treated. In the, in the flood story, like, hey, we just want to take a nap. We're going to get rid of all these humans. Whereas God is going out of his way in the story to say, I value human life. You guys matter to me. Judge, I must judge sin, but there's this tension of your image bearers, and I need to judge sin. God makes a public sign of his promise to never do this again. Um, again, none of these things are depicted in the Epic of Gilgamesh. Okay, if you have questions... We can ask him. You guys, we've survived thus far. You guys cool? Okay, I'm going to give a few comments on how we kind of understand and relate to this story. I feel like this has gone a little bit longer than I intended. You guys cool? Okay, I just need a little bit of some affirmation here. <laughs> okay, I think in this story we see this main point being God's mercy and judging sin always leads us to trusting his faithfulness. So, Three thoughts related to this. One, the story of the flood leads us to we can rely on God. I think that's the main point of this whole story. We can rely on God. 
God is himself never changing. He doesn't get flustered. He is faithful to his word. He says what he's about, and he's committed to it. You'll notice in Hebrews 11, it says, By faith Noah, being warned by the flood concerning events as you as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed the, an ark for the saving of his household. By this he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. Which is basically another way of stating, Noah just said, you know what, I don't understand what's going on around me, but I'm going to trust that God's word is clear about who he is, and I'm going to trust God over everything else that I can see. This, this world is incredibly unstable, right? Three weeks ago, none of us would have had any idea that uh, the stuff with Ukraine is going to happen, um, that COVID would no longer be the main item in the newspapers, but Ukraine would be, you know, who knows what else. The world is going to go from one instability to the next. Just like this flood story, it goes from one instability of people being crazy to a flood happening. The story leads us to realize, in the midst of all the craziness of life, we can rely on God. He does not change. The story of who God is and how he reveals himself and what his character is like is unchanging throughout this entire flood story. I, I, it's one of the things where you, when you begin to kind of compare them, the, in the epic of Gilgamesh and all the other flood stories, the gods are like wringing their hands and like, OMG, I didn't know this was going to be so bad. And that here you have in this flood story, it's kind of like, it's very matter of fact, and it's very un, uh, unflustered. And God is himself proactive in the story. He seals, you know, you notice how he was one sealing up the ark. He remembers Noah. He's the one that Noah and their and his entire family can depend on. This is this, this story is in a certain sense written in a way so that we come out saying, you know what, God, I really can depend on you. Okay, second thing I want us to note here, um, your holiness matters to God. This is the second thing. It's very obvious through this story um, how at the beginning it says, verse 9, Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation, that Noah walked with God. There's no way of getting around this. In the story, there is a there's an emphasis in Noah lived in a way that he reflected the character of God. Noah's, Noah's holiness mattered to God. Now, that doesn't mean, it was. It goes on to say that Noah, um, in all that he did, that he was uh, blameless. And four times it comments in the story on Noah obeying the commands of God. Now, being blameless doesn't mean that he was perfect. That doesn't mean that we're perfect. It is a, a life that's oriented towards God himself. It is a life that's oriented towards saying, you know what, God, I have definitely screwed up. Like, so the Apostle Paul later in Philippians 2 says that he was blameless before the law. That doesn't mean that he was sinless, but it means that he owned his sin in orientation towards God. See, as we, we live our lives among our neighbors and our friends and coworkers, uh, I think we can all say, I was not blameless. <laughs> I, w- I didn't live perfectly in my, my work life this last week. I got angry or I was resentful or bitter or whatever it is in our attitudes and relationships. That doesn't mean that we don't have those experiences or we don't have things to repent of, but our holiness leads us to say, God, I need to live these things uh, 
uh, live, uh, repent of them towards you. You're the one I need to own up to these things about. And they're not the way I want to be. Noah is, in a certain sense, living out what's, uh, what Eugene Peterson calls a long obedience in the same direction. You'll notice between, he was 500 years when he got the command from God to build the ark. He was 600 years when it happened. Um, personally, I would consider 100 years of obedience of living out for God, 100 years being a long time. I've not lived 100 years. Maybe you have. Um, Rahana, she's lived 100 years. She's got 100 years of obedience to God. <laughs> um, I think the idea here is that Noah's holiness was not perfect, or um, and it was not spotless, but it was continually oriented towards God. But that's what God was specifically responding to. Um, I want to read this Eugene Peterson quote because, uh, well, I, I really like Eugene Peterson. There's a great market for religious experience in our world. There is little enthusiasm for the patient acquisition of virtue, little inclination to sign up for a long apprenticeship in what earlier generations of Christians called holiness. Religion in our time has been corrupted, uh, has been captured by the tourist mindset. Religion is understood as a visit to an attractive site to be made uh, when we have a when we have adequate leisure. Am I still on? Um, this holiness can best be described um, as deciding to follow what God says. And that Eugene Pearson goes on to say, and yet I decide every day to set aside what I can do best and attempt to do very clumsily, open myself to the frustrations and failures of loving Daring to believe that failure in love is better than succeeding in pride. The point of this is simply to comment. Deciding to live for God, walking with God in holiness, is a dedicated life of failing in one direction towards God rather than continuing to be successful in our own ways. I think that's what we see in Noah is that Noah is failing in the direction of God, not being perfect, but blameless in his orientation towards who God is and needing God's help. Okay. Can we end with one more thing and then we're good? I, I feel like, okay. Um, you get grace through judgment. That's the final comment here on this story. This story is a big story of judgment about who, about towards sin. We can't get around the judgment um, of God uh, for the violence and sin in humanity, but it is in God's exercise of judgment that we experience God's grace. You notice that through this whole story, God is bringing about judgment, but he's persistent in applying grace to Noah and the people that he wants to save and redeem to renew. And so the way in which God does this is not only does he tell Noah, hey, I'm bringing judgment, but then he also provides the very means by which Noah gets the grace. 
You notice how he provided the sacrifice at the beginning of the story. Hey, Noah, I want you to make a sacrifice at the end of this whole thing. So here, take these animals on the boat so you have them to make a sacrifice at the end of the story. God is always bringing judgment, but his way of mercy is to provide the sacrifice so that we experience his grace, which your Jesus buzzers should be going off. God will bring judgment upon our sin. God will bring judgment in one way or the other, but he provides the sacrifice to deliver us from that judgment to come. First Peter comments on this. He says, uh, it says that for Christ also suffered for our sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, and but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey. When God patiently waited in the days of Noah, related to our story, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Comments on this related to baptism. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you not as a removal of, the, of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for good conscience, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven as the right hand of God with the angels, authorities, powers, having been subjected to him. There's a lot we could say about this. But quite simply, this story shows how God's heart is always to provide our way, our way of mercy, our way of grace, to provide the sacrifice for us to experience his goodness to us amidst the judgment that we rightly deserve. God's mercy in judging sin always leads us to trusting his faithfulness. I, I have lately regretted that we didn't give a title to the sermon series only to say, I feel like Genesis is in a certain sense, God wearing the badge. Like when you go to like a mixer, you're like, hello, my name is. Genesis is basically God wearing a badge. Hello, my name is God. He is leading us through this story to realize and experience his mercy and goodness to us. This is who I am. This is what I'm like. The, the reason I told that whole story of the Epic of Gilgamesh is not to impress you or anything like that, but to say, here's what they would have known. And then you can begin to see God's story of who he is in introducing himself to them is so starkly different. It invites us. I think I want to live with this God. I think this God can be relied on. I think I want to live like him. I think I, I want to be like him. I know that I need his mercy. So I hope that as we work through all these elements, that you have begin to see more and more clearly that God is himself inviting us to see that he is a God who is faithful and eager to give us his mercy. So let's pray and we'll move on. God, as we have looked at this passage, I pray that you would help us to experience your mercy again, and that you are a faithful God to us. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to this message from King's Cross Church in Manchester, New Hampshire. Please feel free to share or distribute this content, but do not charge for it or alter the content in any way without permission. King's Cross Church exists to treasure, proclaim, and grow in the gospel of Jesus Christ. To find out more about King's Cross Church, please visit us at kingscrossmanchester.com.